Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. These summer months, this three-week period, if you're not aware of it, you probably wouldn't tune into it, but there is a tangible heaviness. Now, usually that's because we're in Macon and it's 150 degrees with 150% humidity, which makes everyone heavy. But there really is like, if you're aware of the season and if you're aware of what's going on, you find that it's just, there's not, there's like a heaviness around. And what, when that breaks is when we finish the fast of Tisha B'Av and people ask, why in the world would we as Messianic believers why, when we have our eternal hope in Yeshua, why would we have any care in the world about the destruction of the temple or building a new one or, or mourning for its loss or any of that stuff? It's so incredibly obvious, and it's what I said at the beginning. This is not our home. We have homes here. We have families here. We love each other. God has provided this for us. But this is not our home. Our home is together with God. It's together with Yeshua. It's it's part of Israel. It's part of the temple. It's part of the new covenant. It's part of all the things that though we may cry out every day, they're not here yet. And that's part of that fast. And all of that breaks very, very appropriately for us in this congregation on a special Shabbat that follows Tisha B'Av that's called Shabbat Nachamu. When we read Isaiah 40, which is where our name is derived, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, comfort and keep comforting my people. So, I want you to keep that in your mind, and especially this Shabbat Nechamu, if you can believe it. This congregation will be celebrating its 10th year. Can you believe we've survived? I can. It's been an amazing journey. And we're still on the journey, and we're growing together. Now, I have good news, and I have bad news. The good news is, um, I'm back And so I'm going to give you a message about Hebrews that I think is very, very important. The bad news is, I'm back. Which means you will miss out on the blessing of some of the incredible teachers that stand up here in my absence and give, share their hearts. Dr. Irvin Brionis last week. Wonderful, wonderful teaching. Lance Slater, Darren Huckey, Sam Trailer has shared here. We have a great David Higginbotham has spoken here. Richard Eisner has spoken here. A lot of people have shared their hearts. And I am so incredibly grateful for a congregation of, of men, and, men and women, but men who stand here and, and do something for the kingdom. 
So thank you to all of you. Now, here we go. So as you recall, it's been a little while, so again, I don't hold you to remembering everything that I've said, but let's go back to week one of the Hebrews series. Can someone recite for me the verbatim what the takeaway messages were in that? Just kidding. Let's go back two weeks ago when we started talking about better promises. Remember this? Better promises. And we went through a lot of those better promises, actually. And in that process, we, we discovered a number of things. We discovered that under the new covenant and its better promises, we have a um, forgiveness of sins that's taking place miraculously in some way that has never occurred before. And we have the Torah being written in our hearts, not outwardly, but inwardly. We have a restoration of Israel and the Jewish people. There is eternal security in Israel for the Jewish people. There is uh, the son of David and the son of Aaron will be functioning in Israel, in the temple. That is Yeshua and the Levitical priesthoods. That's a promise. Jerusalem is restored and all of those promises promises were given to Israel and Judah. That was the end of the new covenant message and the better, uh, the, the better promises message. All of those promises were given to Israel and Judah. And that ending probably was a little bit challenging for some of my Gentile brothers and sisters, not necessarily in this room, but somewhere, somebody who's listening, is confused by that. But that is actually the purpose of today. How in the world does it all work? And I want to talk about that from the place of three things, uh, replacement theology, the Acts Council, and the fullness of the better promises. Replacement theology, let's go back to the book of Acts and let's conclude this better promises with the most amazing plan of our God in heaven. This is, this idea that the promises of the new covenant were given to Israel and Judah is the basis, the foundation of replacement theology. And guess what? I get it. I totally get it. If you're reading it, you read the prophets, you read things, you'd be hard-pressed to not create some new theology that included people who were not mentioned there. Because as I mentioned in our last Better Promises, the glaring omission from everything there is anything having to do with the nations in a positive way. So you can understand that. The, the, the early church fathers, and, and for 1900 and some years later, replacement theology's assumption had to be that the church is now Israel. And thus we can reconcile this confusion. The church is the new Israel. And yet, well, and, and so what's the, what's the corollary to that? That means that the Jewish people are now set aside, brushed away, forgotten, excluded. Gentiles, nations, church included, Jews excluded. 
That's, that's what has to come from that. And so if Yeshua inaugurated this new covenant and, and, and like it's for, it's for his followers, then we nations, they, they, we, we must create a new theology. And that's what came out. It replaced Jews, the Torah, the temple, Aaron, and more. So the nations are embraced. Israel and the Jewish people are replaced. There's no sacrifices. There's no Torah. There's no legalism, right? That's the whole thing. You talk to anybody about being a Torah follower or I'm going to a messianic thing, I'm doing something Jewish. Watch out, watch out for legalism. No, see, this gets rid of all that because Jesus got rid of all that. And given the importance of the Holy Spirit in this whole package, now the Spirit is our guide. The Spirit is our guide. The Torah and all that stuff, eh, eh, don't need it. The Spirit is our guide. We're filled with the Spirit and we're walking. The Jews, numb, blinded, forgotten, replaced. The nations, they're alive and Spirit-filled. Now we could argue and say, but the Spirit fills you with something very particular. The Torah. That's what, and, and we could use a number of, you know, we could offer up some of the rebuttals that we've used and, you, and used last week that, that the t- Spirit and the Torah are at the center of the new covenant. That the new covenant, Israel and Torah are inseparable. They cannot be torn apart from one another, but those we would find would probably fall mostly on deaf ears, right? Hence the fact that we're doing a m- several months series looking at the book of Hebrews from a non-replacement theology perspective and restoring many of these truths. But that is the reason why replacement theology exists, because Israel was set aside that, that, that the... That, but, but, but here's another just quick side. I was at, I had a guest for Shabbat dinner last night, somebody from the church. We were talking about replacement theology. And, and she said, Damien, like, I don't know where you get this because all the churches that I've been a part of, this is not, this isn't how it is. What you're saying about replacement and, and Israel and all, that's not how it is. And you know what I said? You're very lucky. Because if you ask somebody, do you subscribe to replacement theology? Their first answer would probably be, what is that? And then the next question when you told them would be, uh, the response would be, of course not. Israel? No, I love Israel. And then you can sit in the pews and you can listen to the messages that are preached. And guess what you'll hear? Replacement theology, because it's so incredibly embedded that people don't even really recognize it as that. But this is the foundation to a large degree as to why replacement theology is so prevalent. How do Gentiles fit into a framework that specifies Israel as inheritors of the better promises? Now, this is not the first time this question has been asked. 
Do you remember another time in history when the question was asked, what do we do with the Gentiles? In the book of Acts, it didn't take long after Yeshua left for this question to arise. Now, I've just told you what the church did with that question, but I'm going to now tell you what the Bible did with that question. Because, and, and the community, Yeshua's followers, his brother, the, the leaders. Now we're going to look at what, as they say, really happened. And you know it. As, that's, that's another little thing I need to let you know. Bad news for today. You know everything I'm going to tell you today. But I want you to be able to present it clearly. I want it to be fresh in your mind. I want it to be a reminder for you. So this is it. This Gentile inclusion issue was the first and most significant issue that the apostolic community faced. This issue of inclusion, the requirements for participation. This is the dominant theme of Paul's writings much of the book of Acts, much of the, the entire discussion among the early apostolic community was this question. Because the new covenant, it would seem, is for Jews. And it does not help when Yeshua comes along and says things like this. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim to them as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says also, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. This is a Syrophoenician woman begging. He answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And then he says, in this great commission... After saying those things, then he says, therefore, go and make disciples of who? All the nations, but I thought we weren't. This is kind of confusing. Not really. Not really. How do we reconcile that? Well, for the first part of Acts, what is assumed is that the only way the nations can participate in the old covenant, I mean, in the new covenant is by becoming... Easy. I told you you knew this. I told you you knew all the answers already. That shouldn't be surprising to us because when Jews heard new covenant, what came to their mind? Israel and Judah, not Rome, Thessalonica, Corinth. Those things didn't even enter into the mind of the first century believers. You understand that? You know that, right? Of course. And why not? Well, because they're idolaters and fornicators and they go to temples for the Greek and Roman gods and they, they worship pagan gods. They're idolaters and that is like a big time no-no in Judaism. It's one of the big three. That you die before you become an idolater in Judaism, right? And so, is it any surprise that the early community would think, well, if you want to be here, you better become Jewish. 
No, it's not a surprise. And another misunderstanding and a very big one is that the church reads the efforts of Jews to make Gentiles into Jews as some kind of satanically influenced, you know, pharisaical, hypocritical, Satan thing. We want you to fall into the same prison we're in. Become like us. They were actually in many cases, trying to do the right thing. They were trying to say, you don't have a place here as a Roman. You have to become like us. And then you can participate. Come on in. So that whole understanding of Judaizing needs to be understood through that lens that they were actually trying to do the right thing. You with me? But they didn't get it yet. Now, as I get older, I understand totally that one of the most appropriate and applicable phrases in the world is hindsight is always, yeah. They didn't get this concept yet that the nations were going to be included. But we read in Acts, and you look back at this and you say, now with our 2020 hindsight, right? In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And he ends that by saying, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Acts 2. That's Acts 2. But who is all people? Idolaters, pagans, fornicators, they're not even people. It's talking even there. Peter and the community understand that as Jews but how could they miss? Because it didn't make sense any other way. Isn't that clear enough? No, it's not. It's not clear enough. And Paul's mission begins in Acts 9. Paul, the disciple, the apostle to the Gentiles. And in Acts 10, Peter meets the most famous and first God-fearing Gentile whose name was Cornelius. And then it all breaks open here in Acts 15, right? The Jerusalem Council. And it is a long read, but this is what it says. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I just explained that to you. Why are they saying that? Because they believed it to be true, and they had a very legitimate reason for believing that to be true. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, because they'd already been doing their thing, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue, therefore being sent on their way both by the ecclesia, the community, not the church. They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. To become Jews? No. But somehow or another, something was at work. And we're bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they received by the community and the apostles and the elders. Who were the apostles and the elders? There were no popes there. There were no Gentiles there. It was all Jews. And they reported all that God had done. But some of the sect of Pharisees, there they are. Who had believed, who had believed, these are believers in Yeshua, stood and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Why are they saying that? These are the 
educated leaders of Israel who are believers in Messiah Yeshua saying, listen, you commoners, you, you am ha'aretz, you, you commoners of Israel, fishermen and tent makers, listen, they cannot participate unless they become Jews. Have I driven this point home enough? You got it? Great. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart testified to them, giving the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Peter, why didn't you get that in chapter two? Because that's just not the way it worked. And it continues. Now, therefore, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Yeshua in the same way as they also are. Now, have you ever had a discussion with somebody about what that yoke actually is? What is that yoke supposed to be? Most people, and I have had this argument, and I remember giving a message one time called my cousin's yoga pants or whatever they were, because we had, I had a discussion with him about yoga pants and this. Damien, you are a follower of Jesus. Why would you put yourself under the yoke of the law? Why would you put yourself under the Torah when Jesus did away with it? Why would you become a legalist? Peter says it right there. Is that what Peter says? Of course not. It's not what he says. Of course not. It's not what he says. I hope you can see the true meaning of what he is saying Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we or our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace. What is the yoke? It is the old covenant agreement. You remember the old covenant agreement, right? All the people, oh, that's something else, that's something else, that's something else. Where is it? I don't know where it is. But you remember this thing at Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel said, sounds good, Hashem, all that you've said, we will do and we will obey. And what is that called? That is called the old, thank you. (laughs) That's the old covenant. And that is the yoke which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. And we've talked about this multiple times. Israel's sin cycle. Sounds good. We'll do it. No, we won't. We'll sin. We'll fall. Okay, I'll send someone to redeem you. Great. We're redeemed. We're going to do better now. No, we're not. We're going to fall again. We're going to sin. We're going to be... That's the yoke that they couldn't bear. And what is Peter saying? He's saying miraculously somehow. We don't need to put them under that. They don't need the old covenant. They need the new one. 
and they have access to it. And James confirms it. He says, brothers, I mean, can you even believe this? And James confirms this. All the people kept silent. They were listening after they had stopped speaking. James answered, brothers, listen to me. Peter, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the word of the prophets agree just as it is written. And finally, here it is. We get it. It's a miracle. We're quoting Amos. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. It was there all the time, but it just didn't make sense. Now it does. Now it does. And Paul states it this way, a little bit differently when we move to 1 Corinthians 7. This is James' conclusion. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And we know this one and how it's abused. This means we as Gentiles don't have to do anything that came before because now we're free. No legalism. And this... Oh, I see what he's got. There's my scripture. Darren did my slides for me and did a great job. Does anyone know what Paul's rule for all the communities is? It's particularly relevant for us in Messianic Judaism. He says, this is my rule for all of the communities. Does anyone know what it is? This is it. This is it. Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition which he was called. This is the first part of that. In this manner, let him walk. Lord has assigned to each one as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. So I direct in all the churches with any man called when he was already circumcised, he's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? He's not to be uncircumcised. That's Paul's rule for all the churches. And that is what is being lived out in this room. Jews and Gentiles, participants in the new covenant. So we're, Paul would be proud of us. We're following his rule for all the communities. But how? How? But how? How did it change? Well, we all know the answer. We all know the key. But for Gentiles, for, for, for non-Jews, for people who are not naturally born Israel and Judah, this is the most important scripture in the entire Bible, I think. And I use it all the time. Paul coming to the rescue again. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which performed in the flesh by human hands, remember, listen to this dismal list. You were separate from Messiah, excluded from where? And you were strangers to what? The promises of the 
covenant. And what did you have? No hope. Man, that stinks. Without God in the world. These better promises, all that we've been talking about, no claim. But then this happens. Now, in Messiah Yeshua, you formerly were far off, have been brought near. To what? The covenant, the promises, but most importantly, Israel. Because there is no conceivable way that the new covenant can happen apart from Israel. Which, is a, is, which reveals the utter and absolute abomination that replacement theology and all of its interpretations are. To try to distance oneself from Israel. You were far off and now you're not. You are no longer strangers or aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone. That is the hope of the nations. And thus, the nations and Israel become equal participants in promises. There is no scenario, no situation, no possibility of participation that does not include Israel. Messiah Yeshua's perfection, his obedience, his sacrifice, and we'll talk about that before all this series is done. All his disciples, whether Jew or Gentile, have access to the better promises of the new covenant because you are fellow heirs. Paul's rule says we are to remain in our calling, but we are one in Messiah. And what does this look like, my friends, for all of us? Yeshua, the King, will be restored to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the temple, and he will sit there on his throne and the government will rest on his shoulders as his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal, Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Yeshua will rule and reign over everyone, including the nations as participants. And that's a better promise. And Zechariah says, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. They'll come and say, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I'll go also. So many people and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat entreat the favor. That's a better promise for the nations. All who survive of all those nations that came up against Jerusalem shall make a pilgrimage year by year to bow loaded the king of the Lord of hosts and to observe the festival of Sukkot. And that's a better promise to the nations. And it's revealed even now in the 70 sacrifices that are associated with Sukkot, which represent the nations. This is a better promise. Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord. Temple will be established as the highest of all mountains. It will be exalted above a hill. All nations will stream to it. Many will come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his path. 
כי מציון תצא תורה, ובר השם מרושלים. That's a better promise for the nations. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples in Yeshua. That's a better promise. Amen? Okay, good. And it all happened as Jeremiah has predicted it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called Adonai Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And that is a better promise. And so it doesn't come as a surprise that, of course, the link is Messiah Yeshua. Jew and Gentile, the promise of a better hope. And here's the way Paul phrases it, and we conclude here. For the Son of God, Messiah Yeshua, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no. What does that mean? It was not yes to the Jews and no to the Gentiles. It's not yes and no, but it is yes in him. For as many as the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. That is a better promise. And we all lay claim to it. Now, I stated all those things in clear opposition to replacement theology because there is no ground for that to stand on. And I might add that I have, have used the Bible logically and consistently to make this point. Now, we could end our series right here, actually, because that's seemingly the end of the story for us right now. But there's still Hebrews chapter 10, which is filled with amazing and confusing imagery of the temple as it points to the world to come. Two words, protos and deuteros. First and second. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, it's okay. Y'all come back now, you hear? Shabbat Shalom. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makinmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening.